I want to speak to you this morning from Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. I want us to consider the way the Apostle Paul speaks here of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross on Calvary's hill. He's just finishing up his letter to the Galatians and we remember how Paul had been brought disturbing news about the churches from this area and his immediate response uh, was to, to, as it were, grab the pen from the scribe and unusually write this epistle in his own handwriting, his unique, large and bold handwriting. And he writes this impassioned letter, oh foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, he says. He's not referring to the local witches, of whom actually uh, there are plenty, but he's talking of certain other Christian teachers, Jewish Christian teachers, who had been going around these churches in Galatia, teaching that in order to be accepted by the Lord Jesus Christ, you had to submit to circumcision and go back under the old Jewish law. Paul had no doubt, of course, that the Torah had come from God, but he taught and preached that there had been a great rupture in the affairs of heaven and earth. And he preached that now, in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. So to demand that the Galatians must undergo a physical operation to be a Christian was to say that what Christ had done was inadequate to save people. And that always seems to be Satan's main tactic, isn't it? To confuse the entrance point into salvation. And that's the same even today. To sow confusion in people's minds as to the true way to become a Christian. Over and over again, Paul in his letters, and in this letter, emphasises that a man is justified not by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ, as Paul writes even we have believed that in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Chapter 2 and verse 16 of Galatians. And in chapter 2 and verse 21 he writes starkly, For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And this is why he opposes so strongly these Christian teachers 
who are preaching and confusing the entrance point, the gateway to becoming a Christian. And in the immediate verses prior to our text, verses uh, 12 and 13, Paul gives a kind of analysis of these false teachers, these Judaizers, who had done so much to undermine his ministry. We mustn't think that these people were not preaching Christ. They were preaching the importance of the cross, the importance of faith. But they were adding to the gospel. They were saying that you needed Jesus plus the works of the law. You needed to be circumcised as well. But Paul, in great contrast to these false teachers, declared to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch in the Acts of the Apostles, he says, Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. So you see, they're saying you have to be justified by faith plus the law. Paul says you are justified from everything in him, that is to say in Christ, from everything from which you could not be justified in the law of Moses. And so these Judaizers were teaching or glorying in the flesh. Salvation by works. They constrained others to be circumcised, to make a fair show in the flesh. With the motive, Paul teaches, of avoiding Jewish persecution. That was their real motive. Lest, it says in verse 12, lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. They compromised the message in order to avoid opposition. They took a middle, they tried to take a middle way to try to accommodate the views of the predominating culture around them, which at that time was Jewish. And you know, that's a great temptation for the Christian church today, isn't it? To try and take the middle road. To try and sit on the fence. But you see, the true gospel doesn't allow for us to sit in the middle of the road. Because we all know what happens if you sit in the middle of the road. We have to take a side. We either side with the gospel of the, the apostolic gospel or we don't. They were hypocrites. They didn't keep the law themselves but they tried to enforce the law on other people. And Paul perceives in these verses that they're trying to divert attention away from their own sinfulness by demonstrating how religious they are, how, how many people what they have won for their cause, hoping that no one will notice how disobedient they really are. 
you know, religion can be a very deceptive way of covering up your own sin. To clothe yourselves, yourself as it were, in, in a mask of religion. Outwardly to be religious, but inwardly to be full of sin. And false religion is characterised by one thing, it shows off. And it shows off in a fleshly way. It emphasises human achievement over God's achievements. In all religions, and even in some forms of Christianity, the belief is that human good deeds at least play a part in salvation. It's only true Christianity that teaches that salvation is a free gift of God through faith in Christ. And that no amount of work or effort is needed or possible to be saved. We won't think about other world religions now, but just thinking about other people that name the name of Christ and follow a very similar error to what we're reading of here. We think of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Orthodoxy teaches that faith in Jesus is necessary for salvation, but it also teaches that sanctification, the process of becoming more Christ-like, is part of the salvation process. They call it theosis. And if it's not performed correctly, then a Christian will lose his or her salvation. And after death, the devout, if they've been devout enough, they will go into an intermediate state um, where the process of theosis or sanctification, as we would call it, uh, continues and is completed. But those Christians who, who fail to make sufficient progress in their theosis, they go to a place which they call a, a direful condition. And they will go to hell unless the living saints, the living devout, pray and complete acts of mercy on their behalf. Well, tell me one place in the New Testament where that is taught. It's adding, isn't it, to the free offer of salvation in Christ. Roman Catholicism. Now, it's easy to misrepresent the Roman Catholic position because we, we're a bit guilty in the reform world of talking about the Roman Catholic Church as if it was exactly the same as in Luther's time, but of course it's not. But today, the Roman Catholic Church still, in common with many Protestant churches, still teaches that baptism is the essential starting point, at least, for Christian salvation. There are exceptions they make. Baptisms of blood, if you're a martyr, become a martyr before being baptised. Or what they call a baptism of desire, if you really want to be baptised, but you can't be for some reason. So one has to be careful how you explain this. But they still 
believe on the whole that baptism is essential to being saved. And it's without doubt that they still retain a category for those who die in faith but do not complete sufficient sanctification to go straight to heaven. And they then, those go to purgatory where they undergo a cleansing. And this cleansing can be shortened in time, in the period of it, by the offerings and the prayers of Christians on earth. Again, where is that in the Bible? And as I say, it's not just confined to Roman Catholics or, and Episcopalians. We know high, particularly high Anglicans believe in baptismal regeneration. Methodists do have a form of it. And even some Calvinists, some Reformed churches now, are teaching infant, bapt um, or infant bapt baptismal regeneration. There's ever-growing confusion in the Reformed world about the meaning of justification by faith. And this is the tactic of the enemy, to confuse the entrance into faith, the way a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, is saved. Today, as in the time of Galatians, there is still a kind of religion which is very similar to Christianity, but which is really glorying in the flesh. But in contrast to this type of glorying or boasting in religion and outward shows or forms, Paul writes, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Paul, in other words, will not glory in fleshly human achievements, works of religion, adherence to the Mosaic law, circumcision. God forbid that I should glory in any of that, he says. He puts no faith in it. He puts no weight upon it. He has no confidence in any of that for his salvation. He doesn't rely on his track record with God, his national religion, his religious pedigree. And he, perhaps more than anyone, had every reason to, um, to have confidence in the flesh. He, write, he wrote of this in, in our reading in Philippians 3. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And then he goes on this long uh, biography, doesn't he, of, of how, uh, about his Jewish heritage, what he attained in religion, his zeal, his legalistic, blameless law-keeping. And there was so much of that he could have argued he could go to God with, to say, I stand on all of this human achievement, Lord, accept me. For all this that I have done. But what does he do? He goes completely the opposite way, doesn't he? He says, What things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss 
for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them as done, that I may win Christ. The strength of that word is rather lost in translation. You probably wouldn't be allowed to say it if it was a, a literal one-for-one one translation. But he counts them. He counts all his human achievement as done. That I may win Christ. No outward ritualistic religion. No pomp or ceremony. Even his genuine efforts to obey the law of God. His religious zeal. His tradition and culture. None of that would he put any confidence in. That I may know him. I will only glory, he says, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only one thing that I will glory in. Dear friends, I wonder this morning whether we're aware of the danger of, of even subconsciously relying on ourselves, things within ourselves. It's particularly a temptation. It was, it was for me, being brought up in a Christian, a Christian home, really not knowing anything else but a Christian Language, Christian values. Christianity was in the atmosphere at every meal. It was like growing up in, in a Christian vacuum where you really heard no other, very little of other voices. And it's so easy to think that, that all of that which is around you is within you and that you are a real Christian when you're brought out in a Christian home. It is important that we realise that there is nothing in our flesh, in ourselves, or in particularly in the, in the faithful religion of our parents that will stand us in any stead with God. We have to have our own salvation. We have to know Him, Christ, ourselves. No one else can do it for us. And Paul, he was a very religious man. And he said everything that was in him, he counted as done compared to knowing Christ. All that he had done, he counted as loss, that he may win Christ. I just want to consider a couple of things quickly about this statement in, in chapter 6, verse 14. The strangeness. I want to consider the strangeness of this statement and how baffling most people found it to be that Paul would say, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing statement that must have sounded to to those around who didn't really understand the cross. Tom Holland in his book Dominion begins the opening chapter some three or four decades before the birth of Christ by referring to Rome's first heated swimming pool. And Rome's first heated swimming pool was built on the Esquiline Hill just outside the ancient city walls. 
Over time, this area became covered with, with luxury villas and gardens. But for many centuries, it had been left undeveloped. Why had it been left undeveloped? It was because it was the burying place of dead slaves. This was the dumping ground for slaves, for Roman slaves. It had been the place set aside for the execution of slaves who had run away or broken the law or displeased their masters in some way. And when the labourers first began work on the swimming pool, a corpse-like stench still hung in the air and the more they dug down, the worse it became. The smell of executed slaves, even the vultures which, uh, which picked the bodies clean, are famously known as the birds of the Esquiline. You may have heard of them. And it was here where troublesome slaves were nailed to crosses. And no death was more cruel or shameful or contemptible than the death of crucifixion. It became known as the death of a slave, and not just the death of a slave, the death of a criminal slave. And the Romans drew a veil over crucifixion. They didn't really write about it very much, but they certainly used it. Some deaths, some people, were best just not to think about was their attitude. And yet the gospel that Paul preached was centred on four detailed accounts of a crucifixion that took place some 60 or 70 years after the building of this first heated swimming pool outside Rome. The location was a different hill. It was outside the walls of Jerusalem, a place called Golgotha place of the skull. And the crucified one was a Jew called Jesus, a preacher from North Galilee who had been convicted of a capital offence against Roman order. And so you see what an amazingly strange thing it is at first glance that Paul would say, I'm going to glory in nothing else but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's like saying, I glory in the electric chair, or I glory in the gas chamber, or I glory in lethal injection. I boast in the execution of the Son of God by the form of execution reserved for criminal slaves and Rome's enemies. What a thing to say. And yet the preaching of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross is the very heart of the Christian message. It's the central thing in Christianity that matters above everything else. This was the primary message of the men who founded the Christian church, people called the Apostles. Even more importantly, it was the central message 
of Jesus himself. We think of how Jesus constantly spoke of the cross. Matthew 16 verse 21, 21 he said, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. And then there was the occasion where the disciples were getting all mixed up about the kingdom of God and Jesus said that they needed to rethink everything. And he said, Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And then just think about the Last Supper, how Christ arranged it, how he told them what to do. And as they were eating, he took the loaf and broke it, saying, This is my body which is given for you. And likewise, he took the cup and said, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. You see, the cross was central to the ministry of Christ. And then the preaching of the cross is central in the Acts of the Apostles. There are many examples, but we think of Paul's long sermon in Antioch, in Acts 13. And it says, For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voice of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And then in Thessalonica a little bit, Thessalonica a little bit later, in chapter 17 it says, Paul as his manner was, went in unto them in three Sabbath days, reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And then of course in the epistles, particularly the epistles of the Apostle Paul, but not exclusively. This message of the cross is central. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I, says Paul, delivered unto you first of all, that which is of first importance, which I also perceived how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. There was a time when he was <clears throat> ministering to the Corinthians where he sums up his ministry in a sentence and and of all the things he could have said about the time he'd spent at Corinth, this is what he says. He says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his message. And many were absolutely baffled by this message of the cross. Why, why emphasize the cross of all things? Paul acknowledges this, he says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. 
Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 says, But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. Yes, it's a very strange thing, isn't it, to make the central aspect of your message the cross, a despised and dishonourable way to die. But for Paul, he says, God forbid that I should glory in anything else, in anything else, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So why? Why does Paul think this way? Why does Paul talk this way about the cross? And we have to get this right, dear friends. You see, there's a way of looking at the cross or considering the cross which misses the mark. There's a way where many people do it where they, they admire the cross. They admire the self-sacrifice of Christ. They, they spend ages thinking about the physical aspect of Christ's suffering, which of course is enormous. When the Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross, there were the crowds, many were watching it in the crowds. But I wonder how many of them really understood what was going on. You see, there's a way of looking at the cross and even the cross being part of your religious life where, where you're just a spectator. You're just admiring it from afar. It's easy to become sentimental about it. To admire the beauty of and the self-sacrifice. To become fixated with the physical representations of the cross in art. It's easy to turn the cross into a kind of superstition. It seems when you watch football these days, every, every second footballer seems to, to cross himself as they, as, as they come onto the pitch. And I'm sure there can't be that many Christians in football. You see, it's easy to use the cross as a kind of lucky charm, as a kind of superstition. There's nothing in the Bible that I can see that forbids uh, the wearing of crosses around our necks, I don't myself, or placing them on our walls, but we have to be very careful to think that there's any spiritual value in doing so. There's no protection about from wearing a cross around your neck. Be careful that we don't miss the mark. You see, we need to understand why Paul gloried in the cross. He was more than an admirer, than a spectator. The first reason that Paul glories in the cross is because it is God's way of salvation. It is God's way of salvation. What happened to our Lord? As our Lord died upon the cross, is the very thing that saves you and I or any sinner that comes to Christ. If Christ had not died upon the cross, no one would ever be saved. It is a saving event. It's the act by which our salvation 
is accomplished. This is what Jesus said himself in his parting word to the disciples. In Luke 24 he says thus, it is written, And thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You see, the cross To be saved means that your sins are forgiven and that you are reconciled to God through what Jesus Christ achieved upon the cross. You become a child of God through what the Lord Jesus Christ achieved upon the cross. He dealt with sin. He dealt with that which is the barrier between us and God's sin. And as the great substitute, the Son of God took upon himself the sins of the whole world. And it is through the cross that you and I are saved. The second reason, as we close, which Paul, why Paul glories in the cross is because of the radical change it brought to his life. And he speaks of it here, doesn't he? The radical change the cross has brought to his life. He says, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. I am glorying in this cross, Paul says, because it is it's the thing, the one thing, that has crucified me to the world and the world to me. He's not referring to the physical universe. Of course, he's, he's referring to the same world that the Apostle John refers to in 1 John 2.15, where he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world that he's referring to is... We could say it's, um, well, this is a quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, where he defines the world as this. Life, the world means, life viewed and thought of and lived apart from God. That's a good definition, isn't it? The outlook, the thinking, the desires, the priorities, the behaviours of life lived according to the course of this world. Paul defines the world in Ephesians 2, where he says, And you have he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The Apostle John defines the world famously in 1 John 2, verse 16, where he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. You see, to be worldly is to live in the flesh, to put yourself at the centre of everything, to live for this world, 
to confine your desires and interests completely to this world of time. Living to gratify self. But Paul says, because of the cross, he's dead to all of that. And all of that is dead to him. He will have nothing more to do with it. He's crucified with Christ, he says earlier in this epistle. I am crucified with Christ, and now the world is dead to me, and I am dead to the world. You see, for Paul, the cross meant a radical transformation of life. He no longer belongs to himself. He says in the 17th verse of chapter 6, Let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I bear in my body the stigmata of the Lord Jesus, the brand marks of a slave. You see the Romans uh, branded their slaves. It was a sign of ownership. This slave, uh, this slave belongs to this particular master because he, is, he has this particular brand on his body. It was applied to cattle as well, so that if cattle got lost, then they, they would know which farmer it belonged to. The same happens on, on the hills of Exmoor today. But you see, Paul says, trouble me no more, because I have the marks of Jesus on me through all his suffering and all the flogging and all the physical torture he went through. On behalf of Christ, he bears the stigmata, the signs of ownership, that he is the slave of Christ. You see, he, he no longer belongs to himself. He belongs to someone else, his master. The cross has won his heart. The cross has meant that he wants to live for no, nothing else and no one else but the Lord Jesus Christ. I live, he says, <clears throat> yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Dear friends, as we close, is this true of you? Has the cross transformed you? Is the world dead to you? Or are you still in the world, even if it's just in your mind? A.W. Tozer, one of the holiest men I think who has ever lived, he wrote these amazing words. He says, To be crucified means first the man of the cross is facing only in one direction. Second, he is not going back. And third, he has no further plans of his own. You see, it was true of every poor slave who was marched to the Esperline Hill. It was true of every poor person that died on Golgotha, that they were never going to return to the city from which they had just walked, bearing their cross. There was no going back. And this is what we forget sometimes about being a true Christian. Once you're on a cross, you're only facing one way. There's no more plans for you. Your life is set and there's no going back. And, that, and if, dear friends, we lived our Christian lives that way, 
what a difference we would make to the world. So, dear friends, let us glory. Let us glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and live for him.